everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. We have a big show, so we're going to dive right in. A little bit later on, we're going to meet a singer and a songwriter named Anyama. She was on the cover and was the curator for Spotify's Indigenous playlist for the month of July, so perhaps you heard her there. She was featured nationwide in a documentary as part of Spotify's On the Record program. Uh, she teamed up with the website Notable Life for a takeover of their cultural section in celebration of Indigenous History Month and did a part partnership with the globally renowned YouTube curator, Mr. Suicide Sheep, which amounted to over 400,000 YouTube views and counting. She has a lot going on and she'll tell us all about it just a little bit later on in the show. First up though, Furious Devotion, the authorized story of Shane McGowan by my guest Richard Balls is a portrait either in self-destruction or the indomitable spirit of someone whose demeanor suggests a hangover come to life. It's also a vivid look at the life of a complex and talented man best known as the lead singer of the Pogues. Now, before we jump into the conversation with Richard, here's a taste of the Pogues' best-known song, Fairy Tale of New York. In the UK, it is the most played Christmas song of the 21st century, and it was written by Shane McGowan and Jem Finer. Okay, so you know that song with the beautiful vocal from Shane McGowan and Christy McCall. Now let's get to know the artist behind the song. Richard Balls, author of Furious Devotion, the authorized story of Shane McGowan, joins me via Zoom from England to tell the fascinating and often drunken story of the legend of Shane McGowan. You became a fan of Shane McGowan and the Pogues in 1984 after you saw them perform when they were opening for Elvis Costello. What was it about that show that really grabbed you? In 1984, um, music uh, the music scene was basically uh, Duran Duran and Wham uh, singing about Club Tropicana and, uh, you know, Duran Duran were on, on yachts in the Caribbean and, and none of that really spoke to uh, a a teenager growing up um, in, in, in Norwich uh, in the UK. Um, so having seen, I mean, I, when I went to, into that room, walked into that room to see uh, really Elvis Costello and the attractions, obviously, you know, I saw the stage, this ramshackle bunch of people in kind of black suits, um, you know, playing playing banjo and, and instruments that you generally did not see around at that time in the UK on the on the on the pop scene. It was it was something really different. It was raw. Uh, I didn't really have any reference points uh, for it. Uh, for what I was seeing or hearing, the the closest thing, really, I suppose that I would have come into contact with would have been Dex's Midnight Runners, with the Two Rye yep. album. And in fact, I mean, through through researching this book and actually speaking to Shane, uh, it turns out Dex's were kind of 
important and that, that was a record that, that he you know really loved to come on Eileen particularly when he was working in a record shop apparently he kept putting that on so it, it, that, that would have been the nearest thing but certainly I would never have listened to Irish music uh, my my only you know any any thoughts about Ireland would have, or experiences would have been you know seeing Val Dunigan on TV yeah. or, uh, <laughs> you know I'd never listened to the Dubliners or the Chieftains or anything like that so the, the, I had no reference point, so I, my my, what what drew me to it was just just it was just so unorthodox, but also really exciting. Well, it had that punk rock spirit. It was traditional music in a lot of traditional instruments uh, playing in a, in a way that we probably hadn't heard them played before. Uh, you know, tell me a little bit about the role that the Sex Pistol played uh, in Shane's life and career, because there is a direct line. The music doesn't sound the same, but there's a direct line between Johnny Rotten and Shane McGowan. Golden thread, in a way, that, that that runs through all of this, probably is is the Sex Pistols. That was such a seminal moment, um, really, the sort of Damascene moment for Shane, because he he'd been in uh, psychiatric care when he was seventeen. In fact, he spent um, about six months uh, in you know, yeah, but really had a, a breakdown. Um, he would have been on a ward with you know, surrounded by people with really you know, quite serious um, illnesses, and. When he came out of 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 there, this is Bedlam, is known as literally known as Bedlam, Royal Bethlehem Hospital, and you can't understate the the impact that must have had on a teenager. So when he came out of there, the first gig that he saw after coming out of hospital was the One O Oneers, which were really a, a pub rock band mm -hmm. in, in essence, uh, fronted by Joe Strummer. Um, they were performing, and on the bill with them was the Sex Pistols. I am an anti-coast, I am an anarchist. Don't know what I want, but I know how to get it. I want to destroy So Shane walked into that room, a bit like maybe I did with the Pogues, saw the Pistols and was like, you know, this is it. This is, you know, this is exactly what I've been waiting for. This yeah. is the yeah. moment. Uh, when everything seems to make sense, uh, the what what must have been particularly compelling for Shane was the fact that John Lydon, the, uh, obviously the singer of the Pistols, was also second generation Irish. He also looked odd. Shane looked odd. Shane had gone through his life, uh, you know, with that sense of 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 diff you know being different, mm -hmm. um, not fitting in. And and here was here was a group that did, didn't care what they looked like, didn't care about fitting in. I mean, yeah, and also when when Shane then embraced punk and became part of that scene, it, he appreciated came to appreciate the fact that it was very inclusive. This this here was something here was somewhere where he could be himself and look the way he did with his ears and his teeth and, and all the rest of it, and and it was really really inclusive. But the main thing I think was. You know, he would have had, he told me himself, he had quite a lot of anger at that time 
for various reasons and and some of it would have been because of it, the way his health had declined his mental health but also he was very angry about uh, the the presence of british troops in uh, in northern ireland this was something that he he felt incredibly strongly about and the pre you have to appreciate this was when um you know uh, the, the ira were uh, carrying out bombing campaigns in in london blowing up wimpy bars on oxford street and so on so you know, uh, the, you, Shane had a lot of anger, and also not only was this a, 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 was something that gave him direction, but also this was something where he could channel all that anger. Uh, you know, and he saw the pistols. He thought, "This is I can just channel all my anger. This is just brilliant." You're listening to my interview with Richard Balls, author of *A Furious Devotion: The Life of Shane McGowan*. Available now wherever you buy fine books. And at what point then did uh, the change come where uh, he put down the electric guitars and and all the the sort of accoutrements that go along with punk rock, and and shift his attention over to a more traditional sound that the Pogues created. I think it was a bit of a kickback against uh, the way that music uh, was going. Like I, like I've said, I mean, you know, in in 1983, four, a lot of people were probably looking around the British popular music scene thinking. You know, like it's like punk never happened. Mm -hmm. you know, what, what was what was the point of it all? Because we've now ended up with a lot of, you know, there was a lot of materialism in the air then. In, in, in British society was getting was starting to get a little bit materialistic, and like I say, those so people were singing about stuff that just meant, meant nothing to people, just nothing. You know, it's just like kind of it's escapism. Um, and, and, and and there's a obviously a massive place for that in pop, but I think it was a bit of a a sort of a, a response uh, to that, uh, you know, to that to that kind of trend. And so, yeah, I mean, Shane was in the the Nipple Erectors, and then they became the Nips. Uh, that would they were effectively a punk sort of stroke new wave band. But I think uh, Shane had, uh, I mean, he'd grown up listening to Irish music and loved it, absolutely loved it. That was, you know, his spiritual home was the cottage that he used to go to in Tipperary in Ireland. And that's where this all leads back to. I mean, ultimately, all of this stuff with the Pogues and his songwriting all goes back to the commons in, in Tipperary. Um, so I think a lot of groups as well were, they weren't the only ones. I mean, kind of, it grew up organically. It wasn't like a kind of movement, a de deliberate movement, but the Pogues at the time they came out were part of a scene which involved the men they couldn't hang, the Boot Hill Foot Tappers, the Shillelagh Sisters, Billy Bragg to an extent, you know, there was this kind of return to roots music. Well, I think that a lot of uh, punk rock and a lot of punk rock musicians drifted towards roots music, uh, certainly on my side of the Atlantic, uh, because there was an authenticity to it that, you know, punk rock at a certain point perhaps became a caricature of itself. Uh, it fell out of favor, perhaps. But the authenticity of country music and roots music was maintained. It was still there. And so for sure, you weren't playing three chord rock and roll anymore. But the, the power of the message was still very strong. Yeah, I mean, acoustic music um, has always been, you know, very, very popular in this country, but it's obviously gone in sort of peaks and troughs. Mm -hmm. And uh, and when the Pogues were performing, so that when they came out, that was back sort of, I suppose, 1984, played their first gig. So, yeah, there was a, there was definitely a more of a movement towards that, and a lot more bands were appearing on top of the box with acoustic guitars rather than uh, electric ones. Most people probably know the Pogues from Fairy Tale of New York. Yeah. 
cut them with me pile I put them with my own Can't make it all alone I built my dreams around you Is that a good entry point? Yes, I think it can be for sure because that that um, that is most people's uh, you know knowledge about about Shane Shane's songwriting and uh, and it is an absolutely towering song you know. Now to write this book, you had to meet with McGowan. He does not like to be interviewed. How did you earn his trust throughout the the, the beginning stages of all of this? By being patient, I suppose, is, is the, the, the shortest answer, <laughs> but um, a slightly longer version of that. I mean, I interviewed Shane for uh, a book that I wrote about Stiff Records mm. uh, some years ago, and um, I just loved him. I mean, I, I just, you know, I spent this afternoon, you know, hours and hours, loved him. I just thought he was really interesting, genuinely interesting person. Um, it struck me that there must be so much more about him than... Shane the Drinker, mm. he wrote Fairy Tale of New York. You know, there, there's just so much more. There's this clearly a very complex guy here, but no one has ever really, I didn't think anyway, anyone had really ever properly, properly explored who he is. Um, and, and maybe it's a fool's errand. I mean, maybe I have been on a fool's errand. I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe I haven't really explored, you know, discovered who he is either. And maybe, and maybe he doesn't know. But um, what happened was basically Paul Ronan, who's one of his oldest friends, he, he facilitated that, that meeting in, in, uh, in London for the Stiff Book. And uh, I became friends with him. And, and then when I, when I decided I wanted to maybe have a go at writing a book about Shane, um, Paul you know, spoke to Shane about that. And Shane said he wasn't opposed to it, which is about as, <laughs> you know, not being opposed to it. That's like, yeah, that, that's as good as you're ever going to get. So, um, I mean, Shane, you know, did Shane want a book written about him? No. Yeah. Did Shane, you know, does he, does he want anything done about him like that? No, definitely not. It wasn't like he wanted it, but I wanted to do it. And I felt that he also deserved to, to be recognized as well, you know, uh, and to 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 bring the story up to date because um, there hasn't been a book about him for a very long time. And actually, in recent years, although Shane's um, Shane hasn't been uh, recording new material, he's had the Ivan Novello Award. He's 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 been married two years ago. You know, he he's uh, he's had a, a lifetime achievement award from the National Concert Hall in Dublin. So actually, there's been a lot happening in his life, even though you know. But but in order, just sorry, to, rambling slightly to go back to your original question of how I earned his trust, was was just to, to because I had the um, the privilege of of being able to sit in his flat with him, and stay there overnight and and be there the next morning, and I had time, so I knew that it was a, a very you know it was a long burn, right. Um, and I think I earned his trust by just not continually firing questions at him. Yeah, it was interesting. I've read about your first meeting with him for the the book about Stiff Records, and yeah. you know, he kind of lived up to the reputation that a lot of people have. He fell asleep on your tape recorder. He got himself locked in the toilet of the pub and had yeah. to be let out. He lived up to that, but... So I guess in some ways he was what you expected, but also from hearing you speak, I get the impression uh, that there's so much more to him because when you see the videos, you just think here's a hangover come to life. Uh, even though the lyrics are beautiful, uh, 
you know, and, and the, the music is often transcendent, uh, you know, his, his personal reputation, I think has overshadowed how smart he is, yeah. uh, what a beautiful wordsmith he is, uh, and, and ultimately what a good performer he was. Yeah. And, and I was, and I was kind of vindicated in the sense that, um, when, when, uh, I was pointed towards, uh, uh, this guy, Tom Simpson, who was, um, Shane's English teacher when he was at school. Um, I think it was Siobhan, actually, Shane's sister helped to help to put me onto this one. Um, he, he, he was at the time, he's, he's actually, uh, sadly died, uh, since, uh, I spoke to him, um, a few years ago. And, um, I mean, he was, he was over 90 when I, when I met him. Um, the, the point is that he had kept Shane's work. He'd kept Shane's school books and, uh, you know, and there he was at 90, he still had them. Now he didn't keep any work by any other pupils. He had no way of knowing that Shane was going to become famous, you know, but he obviously knew something that that, that in, in this, the, the, you know, some of it was written in like red felt tip pen. And this is like the 11 year old, you know, right. But you could see in that. And, and so could he. There was a sort of genius, uh, you know, in terms of the words and the writing style and everything. So, you know, that 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 to me is one of the most important things about Shane is his in incredible intelligence very very well read guy i mean you feel an idiot in his company that's the truth you, you just feel inadequate completely he is so sharp and so intelligent it, it, it's, it's frightening you're listening to my interview with richard balls author of a furious devotion the life of shane mcgowan available now wherever you buy fine books you interviewed 60 of his friends and family members. You talk about his old teacher there. Uh, what kind of picture did those interviews paint of him? I mean, you know, people were very honest and, and I'm really grateful for that, uh, that they, they, they felt able to, to speak to me in that way and be quite honest in their, in their uh, opinions about him. I think everyone is um unanimous in some things for example the intelligence you know everyone is absolutely unanimous this guy is incredibly bright very very well read knows everything encyclopedic knowledge i mean it's not just history and politics and stuff it's sport it's you name it you know he, he films he, he knows it you know god knows he watches you know you know not as many as you obviously but he watches quite a lot of, quite a lot of films um but he he really is extraordinary so people um, I, I was struck by um, how much people cared about him, I think. Um, I mean, even Sinead O'Connor's, I mean, some of her comments can be read as very harsh. Um, you know, for example, she says she feels that he doesn't really want to live. And if he's saying that he wants to walk again, he's like, uh, you know, th those comments on paper look harsh and, 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 and maybe they are. But I, I think it's I think they're born out of um, a care for him. You know, I, I mean, most people I met care very, very much about Shane. And uh, and I have to say, I mean, in all the time I spent with him, which was quite a lot of time, he just came across as a, a genuinely nice guy. He's very quiet. He's not a conversationalist. I mean, you know, don't think that he is someone who jabbers on. Or he really doesn't. I mean, it, you know, it's like trying to get blood out of a stone at times. He, he doesn't say much. But Do you you know, when he does say something, it's good. Do you think it's fair to suggest that uh, he drank his way out of perhaps doing his greatest work? It's a difficult one to answer because uh, on the one hand, um, I mean, he drank, you know, really, really heavily through the whole period where he was 
at his most creative. Mm-hmm. So you could say, well, you know, uh, that that kind of Brendan Bean style uh, of of life that he led for so long that certainly didn't uh, at that point didn't affect his creativity. And he wrote his, you know, all the great songs like you know, a pair of brown eyes and Fairy Tale of New York, Rainy Night in Soho, all these classic songs. Um, they they were written at a time, you know, when he was drinking, you know, uh, you know, enough to sink a battleship. Um, you know, in terms of, uh, and obviously his creativity w- has obviously diminished uh, drastically, but that may have been more to do with the, you know, the drug intake later, possibly. But alcohol, I mean, he still drinks, you know, solidly every day yeah. from the moment he gets up. So um, it's it's a hard one to answer, but because of the success that he had when he was drinking vast amounts. It would have been easy to write a book about his drunken exploits. Uh, and I, I, I yeah. know that you are a fan. Uh, so you wanted to do him justice. So you have to look beyond that. Um, you did not shy away from the darker aspects of his life, but how did you find the balance between being a fan and being a biographer? Really difficult. Um, really, really difficult. Um, I mean, it's always, a, as a biographer, the responsibility is so great. That it, it really weighs on you because this is someone's life and also you're dealing with their family. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I was working very, very closely with Siobhan, his sister and his father, Morris, who, by the way, was 92 on the day the book came out last week. <laughs> so maybe when people say, why is Shane still alive? You know, there's something is maybe something in that that's right um but they were very they, they worked with me very very closely and uh, and obviously i kind of discussed things with them and and ran things past them and said you know do you think this is fair to mention etc but uh, but ultimately it's it's very very difficult um i think that i'm maybe unusual in the sense that i i don't shy away from uh from this uh f- from from portraying the darker side of things and actually i just think how can you write a book about somebody like Shane who's led the life that he has without, um, you know, shining a light into some of these, these dark corners? Uh, I, I don't think it's, I think you're just cheating the reader and I don't think you're really doing justice to the subject either. Well, you have to have peaks and valleys. If you have all valleys or all peaks, you're, you're not near the, uh, the width and breadth of anyone's life and, and being honest about it. There are a great many myths that surround Shane McGowan. I think probably the biggest one is that he was born in Ireland, which he wasn't. Uh, how do you sort through all the misinformation? I, you had access to him, uh, but there's also 30 or more years of articles spouting misinformation that have been written. Tell me about sort, sorting through and sifting through all of that. Yeah, that was that was a real job. I mean, that is like that trying to trying to sort of untangle the, the the sort of the knots and the wet this web that's been built up around him i mean I, I found one just the other day that i haven't seen before i think a piece from the irish times in 1997 where he was actually quoted as saying i was born in ireland himself <laughs> um documentaries that you know presumably had teams of researchers on them have concluded have, have reported he was born on the banks of the river shannon you know, he wasn't. He was born in uh, Pembury, uh, in Kent, in in the UK. Um, it's also been said for years that his parents were uh, the the impression has always been given that his parents were on holiday in the UK, and his mother had him. You know, while she was there, and presumably after after that, you know, he was taken back 
No, they weren't on holiday. They were already living in the UK, as were many Irish people who'd moved. They had moved the previous year to England and were living in Ealing in London. So there's, you know, yeah, there's there's a whole, it was very, very difficult to to untangle all of that. And Shane is not the most uh, reliable narrator. <laughs> well, often I think over the the course of a of a career as lengthy as his and as active and controversial and everything else, you know, when it comes time to to print the the truth or print the legend, often people print the legend because it's more yeah. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's again, I I, I think possibly because I I come from a, a news background, so I, I was a for twenty years I was a news reporter. Uh, and I covered politics and crime, and you know, I mean, I wasn't like a music writer. You know, that, that wasn't I wasn't writing for the for the music press. And maybe uh, maybe there's something in that. So you know, my my instinct is uh, is to to find facts. You know, to fact check, which has obviously become very popular now, fact checking, uh, which I'm pleased to see because I've always been a bit of a fan of it myself. And you know, uh, if 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 I've got anything wrong in the book, it's certainly not for the want of trying. You're listening to my interview with Richard Balls, author of Furious Devotion, the authorized story of Shane McGowan, available now wherever fine books are sold. What do you think Shane McGowan's legacy will be? Well, I mean, I think that's there's quite a few uh, answers to that. I think one of them is that he introduced literally several generations of people, including myself, to Irish music. I mean, I, like I say, I was 17, walked into a room to see Elvis Costello. Here's this band. I've never heard Irish music before. And since then, I've listened to a lot of Irish music and a lot of other people of that ilk. So I think he kind of kicked the door open for for people to, to and, and you know, to, to listen to music that they never would otherwise have, have, have come into contact with. He... His songs, Bruce Springsteen was quoted really recently as saying that he doesn't think his songs will be listened to much in the in the in the long future, but he thinks in a hundred years people will still listen to Shane McGowan's songs. Bruce Springsteen saying that. I mean, wow. wow, you know, is that right? Well, yeah, maybe it is. And I could see, I suppose I could see people listening to Fairy Tale of New York in a hundred years. Yeah. Um but that that's really something for him to say that. So I think that, you know, part of another part of his legacy is is that that he he's he's contributed to the Irish, not only the Irish songbook massively, but actually the global songbook. And I think also he uh, not only did he uh, open the door for people to listen to Irish music, but I think he actually changed for a lot of people the the impression or people's perceptions of Ireland itself. You know that's that's an amazing thing. To, you know the the way that people thought about Ireland. I mean, you know, uh, people in Britain, like I say, especially during the IRA's campaign here, and you know, it, for, for to, to change people's opinion maybe about what Ireland, how they perceive Ireland as a country. Uh, you know, for example, I think one of the reasons why the Pogues were not uh, greeted with open arms by the Irish media when they first and they they weren't. I mean, they were seen as a sort of embarrassment is like they're dragging us back into the past guys we're, we're trying to get out we're trying to get rid of this image of being these guys in suits a bit yeah. drunk we don't want this you know this is the last thing we want but actually you know in a way shane uh gave a much more cool he made up being irish cool 
there is a, a timelessness to the songs as well. I mean, they are in a way their energy is of the moment when they were recorded, but there's a timelessness uh, about them. I think that will probably stand the test of time very well. Yeah, I mean, if you listen to things like a pair of brown eyes, you know, um, they are moving as well. They're they're very very moving, very poignant. Um, that song is. Was about war, but basically, it was a lot of a lot of his songs are, are about war and death and things, you know, stuff like that. And there is a timelessness. When I first heard quite a few of the songs, like streams of whiskey and things like that, I thought, oh, these must be old Irish tunes that um, right. the Pogues have picked up, and they, they've obviously to no. And then I realised, oh, it's written by McGowan. Oh God, he wrote that, and it sounds like an old song because one of the things I love about Shane is that he, he what he loves is old Ireland. You know, that's that's the island that he romanticizes. It's not the it's not modern Ireland. It's it's the the island of 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 of, of the rural uh, parts of the country back in the fifties and sixties. That's that's what he loves. And I think I probably know the answer to this. But has he read the book? No, he hasn't read the book. Uh, and I, I very much doubt he'll ever read it. Um, uh, his his wife hasn't read it, and uh, I, I I don't think they will. And um, you know, but it's it's been incredibly well received so far, mm-hmm. um, uh, and people have um, well. Reviewers seem to be along the same lines that we've been discussing, which is that you know it, it's kind of honest and it, it kind of goes there. It doesn't shy away from you know the the light, the, the, the dark stuff as well as the the light. You know, you kind of light and shade. Um, so please, so far. And who is next on the list <laughs> of of subjects for you? I honestly don't know. Do you know what? It's, it, this has been, I mean, this has been a really long process because the, the this book was meant to come out um, September last year, but because of COVID, uh, it got uh, it got uh, moved along with a lot of other titles. Um, it, in a sense, I think it maybe actually benefited from that because it gave me a little bit longer to, to work on it. Uh, and I was able to, to speak to a couple of people that I hadn't had time to. Um, yeah, I honestly don't know uh, who, who would be next. I think one of the things that I like to try to do is to write about people who who either haven't been written about before or uh, that haven't been covered extensively. And obviously, uh, the the older we get, the, that list just gets <laughs> shorter and shorter. That was Richard Balls. Find his book, Furious Devotion, the authorized story of Shane McGowan, wherever you buy fine books. In this segment, we'll get to know indigenous singer, songwriter, Anyama, whose debut six-track EP, Humans, offers a glimpse into what she sees as the center of her balance. That's art, community, introspection, love, nature, wisdom, and humanity. The EP is available now wherever you buy fine music, and Anima joins me from her home in Quebec to talk about making the record. Um, well, I guess for me, like the most important things is to um, balance all of the important emotions that we have as humans. So I think community, the people around you and how we impact each other, the relationships we have with our friends, family, boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, so this is 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 the community and, and it teached me so much. And to write the album, I needed the people around me to in order to um accomplish um, 
to overcome some inner blockages right and then nature you know nature's a huge teacher trees it's they're they're so strong and they my father when i was a kid used to bring me to the woods when i would do something wrong you know so it was like apologize to the tree and then apologize to nature and then what we what we do as humans i think impact everything we impact nature we impact the environment so so i think it's like gathering all the things that we need as a human and then bringing this into your art or into your your life purpose kind of thing whatever it is like you know people can do just do paint or whatever the 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 vehicle you need to express yourself so it's learning from many spectrums of life and bringing it into art you know so when when you were a little girl did you understand why your father was taking you to the woods and and making you apologize for something bad that you had done (laughs) um i guess like as a child we, we we kind of like we are innocent and pure with everything and what our parents bring us to like understand we don't really question it so i think like i just felt it was natural and it was his own way of like bringing me into like this humility of 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 putting nature first kind of thing or or putting them more more powerful than than us you know so so yeah i did not question it it was natural <laughs> you talk about community and how important community is when you are uh creating your songs and your music the pandemic has forced a lot of us away from our communities because we've had to lock down, we've had to isolate from others. Um, how was the pandemic for you? And did you find that uh, that connection harder to make uh, because we all had to shut our doors and sit inside? Yeah, um, it was hard. And I feel like COVID for me, in a way, though, brought me some time to introspect and I think it either did like a lot of anxiety to some people and for other people maybe gave them some space and some time to like rest and have like just healing time or just like there's so many people that came to me and say oh I started to work out again I started to do this new yoga routine so I think like for some people some of us we like just figured out that we needed to take care of ourselves and then for for some other people it was more hard and I understand because we don't have all the same lives and we don't have the same challenges but for me of course I had the time to heal a lot and I had nature time and I have I had like music time in my studio. So it was kind of a blessing for me to, to have, to have this time. Yeah. You're listening to my interview with singer songwriter, Anima. Her EP humans is available now wherever you buy fine music. Do you think that you will approach songwriting differently because you have done it differently now during the pandemic? I think, do you think that that will move on or uh, is this just one step in a, in a natural progression for you? Hmm. Um, I think like for me, my first EP, well, Humans, um, I wrote those songs like a couple of years ago. And like, for me, the kind of um, the lyrics, I feel like, you know, when you, you do something and then you listen back and you're just like, oh, I should have done this better. I should have wrote this another way. And like, there's stuff that I just cringed on it and I just want to change it. But like, it's it's kind of like now I'm ready to move on from this type of writing. I want to keep like the good things that I loved about humans because there's um, powerful things that I really loved. Take those things, take the lessons and bring them, bring that into the second EP or album. I think it's going to be an album where I'm going to put more time into the lyrics because like I, 
I did not push the words too much. It was not really poetic for me or it was not researched enough. So I want to dive deeper into other feelings and new feelings because my first EP was about like depression, anxiety, and a lot of um, sad stuff, you know? And now I'm kind of growing from this and growing from the pain and I want to like give other tools and give other lessons that I'm going through now, more joy, more positive vibes, warrior vibes, you know? So more upbeat. So it's going to be different, of course. And the way to approach and write that, I think needs to be a different way. I don't know yet how it's going to be though. Like, how am I going to approach the writing? But I think it's going to be really interesting. (laughs) Well, it's interesting that when you look back at whatever the work is that you've done, whether it's music, I've written a bunch of books, you're going to see them on the bookshelf behind me here. Um, When you look back at them, there's always something you want to change. I don't think that there's ever a point at which you just go, this thing's perfect. And I'm never, you know, I don't want to change a word. But what I have found that has been interesting is over the, the course of years, is that I have created a little catalog almost of what my life was like as I've made each of these projects, written each of the books or whatever it might be. So perhaps what this is what this EP is for you now. It's a a snapshot of where you were in your life when you made it. Totally. And like, I feel like that's how we need to look at what we do as, as humans, because it's like the, the, what you just said is like, in the present moment, being authentic with the emotions that you're having, it's not perfect and you cannot control this. It's just expressing it, let it be, let it out and then move away from it or or just like pull the trigger and then do something, continue, like pursue and do it better next time. You know, what what you feel was not good enough, just take it as a positive um, lesson in order to do it better, you know, so. You always have to learn from everything you, from everything that you do, you always learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, this, uh, you've, you've been so busy. I, I'm just looking at a list of things that are, that are happening here. Uh, you are a curator for Spotify's indigenous playlist. Tell me a little bit about putting that list together and, mm-hmm. and perhaps exposing some incredible music to people who may not have known about some of these uh, other great indigenous artists. Yes. Um, for me, this has been like, even um, me discovering artists, you know, because I did not know a lot of uh, indigenous artists. So it was for me like a nice opportunity to like dive into like new people and really got surprised. And I was really happy to be like, whoa, like Nimkish happens and then Jaylee Wolf happens and Neon Dreams and, you know, Ayas Nabi and like those artists that I did not know very well that now I'm just like, wow, like I was kind of just grateful to 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 dive in the experience and 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 to learn the artist and then share the artist it was really just heartwarming you know we're we're very nice i really liked it that was singer songwriter anima find her six track ep humans wherever you buy fine music big thanks to anima also a big thanks to richard balls check out his book furious devotion the authorized story of shane mcgowan available in bookstores and online right now Of course, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you soon. (laughs) 